Emma and Emma Free Is there opportunity? Broken records of the past Does anything really last? And welcome to episode 73 of the Romantic About Baseball podcast. I am your host, Adam C. McKinnon. My co-host, Jim Passon Jr., is on assignment trying to find out if Max Scherzer's Porsche was actually paid for by Dick Monfort. But in the meantime, my guest today is the estimable Keith Law. Keith, thanks so much for returning to the show. Can I really be estimated? <laughs> that I'm estimable. What if I'm inestimable? You're, I you're just cannot in, be estimable. You, you're, it's impossible to pin you down to an estimate. Yes, yes. I would. I'm sort of nebulous, very blurry around the edges. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not just the video quality. Um, so I wanted to jump up because you know, appreciate you coming back, and I wanted to just immediately revisit something we talked about. It was June of 2020. The world was. Somehow, I don't know if it was marginally better. I don't really know. It was COVID right. and now it's Russia. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I have no reference point for this anymore. Yeah, right. Um, ter- terrible is terrible. <laughs> it's just a different shade of terrible now. Mm-hmm. Um, but last time we t- we were talking about like, you know, the 2020 season was just, uh, you know, on the, its way in. We talked about a shortened draft. We talked about the effects of like the JUCO circuit that and the the way that... Uh, the world of prospects and the way that that was sort of shifting or changing in that time. I'm wondering, like, since then, can you just, now that we've had some time to kind of look at this, can you describe or quantify the sort of ripple effect and maybe some other factors have had on not just the players and how their path to the majors and, and to the farm systems, but how the teams are constructing their systems? It's a great question to which I don't honestly do not have an answer. I can't quantify it, quantify it. And I think we are still grappling with its effects. I don't know that we'll ever truly be able to quantify it because of the difficulty of uh, teasing out all of the different variables involved, which players are most adversely affected by losing an entire season, minor league season in 2020 and then if you look at any list of top prospects, it doesn't have to be mine, but I will just refer to mine. But if you start looking through, say, my top 100 or my team-by-team team top 20s, you will notice again and again mentions of players who missed pretty significant time with injuries last year. It's more than I've ever run across. And I think it is the most parsimonious explanation is that this was players coming back to play after not playing for a year. The whole world, the whole minor league, world misses a year in 2020 tries to come back to a regular full season just delayed by a month but it's the same workload in 2021 and guys got hurt a lot and i don't just mean pitchers either if if anything i think that there's at least an argument to be made that there are some pitchers who are better off for having sat out 2020 i'm not sure we'll ever know for sure who they are but i feel pretty confident that 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 archetype exists. The pitcher who is better off by not pitching for a year because it helped him because he had some minor stuff going on that just got a chance to heal that is typically not afforded to a pitcher because they generally just get an off season and then they're right back at it. Position players, on the other hand, missed reps, missed opportunities to face better pitching and continue their development. And then a lot of them, I mean, a lot of them got hurt and missed significant time in 2021. So 
a few statements I'm confident making without having really firm evidence or anything to quantify. One, we are generally worse off in prospect world for losing 2020 and the ripple effects into 2021. Um, two, we'll probably never fully understand which players were most affected. We will be able to make guesses, but it'll probably never be anything more than that. And uh, three, we're still going to see ripple effects into 2022, even into 2023. Players who, you know, younger players now who missed a critical year of development in the DSL or in the, you know, what used to be the Gulf Coast in the Arizona Rookie Leagues, and it's still just sort of rippling forward and forward and forward. It's going to take several years to work all of this out through the minor leagues before we're no longer talking about this. And that's assuming there is not some further disruption at some point. Right. And it's, and I, I can appreciate that because when we talk about prospects, we are literally guessing we're, we're, we're betting on the hypotheticals in some ways we have data to back it up and make educated guesses, but really we are just betting on the hypotheticals. So it's, how do you think teams are factoring that in? How do you think like, teams that are on the sort of rebuilding track or teams that maybe are, uh, I'll take the Rockies as an example, because Mm -hmm. why not use the Rockies as an example for something like this? Why not? Yeah. Teams that like have really missed, like we're hoping to turn a corner or start a process, a rebuilding process, something like that. How do you think teams are going to react to this sort of thing? Uh, Every team is, like there's not one single answer to that. Every team is taking a very different approach. Um, And I say is taking, because again, this is sort of ongoing, right? Every team had its own approach during the pandemic to how to deal with players that they couldn't see. They were just talking to players basically over zoom, having players, you know, many teams had players try to record stuff and send it in, send it for coaches to be able to see, to try to work with them. Teams, some teams were able to have kind of limited instructional leagues in the fall of 2020. And I will say in 2021, you started to see more of a return to teams' typical development paths. Not every team does instructs. Not every team works with players the same way. But I think it's pretty – I hope I'm, I'm being accurate in saying that most teams operated in 2021 like it was a regular year. That other than yeah. shifting the minor league calendar by one month, they essentially acted like – this is a regular minor league season because there's what is the possible blueprint for dealing with a lost season? I, I, I'm not sure I would have known. Do you say, well, we're going to try to give players extra time off because they're going to get hurt more. I mean, maybe some teams did that and it didn't help, but I don't think we really know that for sure. Anyway, many of these injuries we're talking about were very acute injuries, you know, player who would Corbin Carroll blows out his shoulder on one swing would giving him time in the first week of the season, right. giving him time off had done anything I highly doubt it. Travis Swaggerty, I think, dislocated his non-throwing shoulder, diving back into a base. It was all of these really, what seemed to be random, and I I use that word colloquially, injuries uh, that happened, again, very acutely. One swing, one move um, that led to a season-ending injury, often in many cases, to surgery. Could any of those have been prevented? Eh, I, I don't think so. I, I hesitate only because that's truly not my field, strength, conditioning, kinesiology, any of that. So I, know, I know what I don't know, but it sure seems like those are the types of injuries that there probably wasn't a whole lot we could do to prevent them. And I find it hard to believe that the increased prevalence of those injuries last year was merely a coincidence coming after a completely lost season. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think what I'm curious to see is, you know, for a long time, there was the stock up on pitchers, you know, just quantity of arms and go for the high upside, you know, high upside players. And like what you were talking about, this this lost season has kind of, I wonder if it's forced a sort of reevaluation on the strategic element of how how teams construct these rosters, if they go particular heavy or not, you know? I, I think... Um, you know, I feel like we saw last year teams were probably if they constructed rosters differently. And I, I want to admit, I did not have these specific conversations with player development folks, too. So I'm trying to interpret sure. from what I heard from them as we were discussing more discussing specific players uh, or what we can simply see in the data, too. that teams were probably thinking a heck of a lot more about managing pitching workloads, but not thinking about how to manage any of their position players differently. And that's not a criticism. I honestly don't know what I would have done in their shoes, what I would have done differently to try to, again, to try to reduce injuries to position players. Teams did give players days off a lot. If you look at players who played most of the season, you pull up game logs, you realize, no, actually, they they did sit guys quite a bit. I would go to games quite a bit last year and often show up and, oh, so-and-so's not playing. Dylan Dingler was not playing the time I went up to Erie. Uh, no, sorry, to Harrisburg to see Erie because it was Cade Cavalli against Spencer Torkelson, Riley Green, Brian Kreidler, and what should have been Dylan Dingler. And it was just a routine day off for him, and, yeah. which is completely understandable. I was disappointed, but, you know, they don't make the they don't set the lineup for me. Um, they should, but they don't. <laughs> and so, you know, I think teams were very cognizant of this. Now, what, what will be very interesting to see is, oh, so now, okay, now we're in year two. Let's assume that we get a regular minor league season this year, regardless of what's going on with the CBA. Correct. How do teams manage things differently this year? Do they ramp up starting pitchers workloads? Eh, probably. They'll probably, you know, everyone's okay. You pitched this much last year. You can handle a little bit more this year. You can go a little deeper into games. You can throw uh, this many more innings over the course of a full season. But now what do you do with a position player? Let's go back to Corbin Carroll, who I still believe in very strongly. And, sure. and most people do. Most people think this kid's got a great chance to be a star. He's still very young. He's pretty advanced, but he did also just lose essentially two years of, of that bats due to the pan, uh, due to the pandemic. Um, so, you know, what do you do with him? Can you send Corbin Carroll out and say, we're going to get you 450 plate appearances this year, come hell or high water. Right. It may be a terrible idea. Who knows what his body is going to be able to handle. And Corbin Carroll is a guy who everyone says great makeup has worked his tail off. His rehab was amazing. His conditioning is great. He's really athletic, yeah, but he's still human, right? He's not a cyborg, I think. <laughs> so do <laughs> to you be say, determined. Hey, you're only going to play, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's we're in six game series now. You're playing five of every six, and some weeks you're only going to play four. We're going to give you just random days off here. Maybe it's more. Maybe, rather than say maybe, let me say this. One thing I would counsel in those situations. Nobody's asking me. I don't work in player development, but if somebody said, "Hey, what would you do about this?" You know what I would do for a player like Carol, who I know is not getting to the big leagues this year, and that's not an indictment of his talent. He's just never played. Right. But I would say. Our plan, you're going to play four four games one week, five games the next, four, five, four, five, more or less, depending on how you feel. But the plan is to have you then go accumulate more at-bats, either in the Arizona Fall League or in one of the Winter Leagues. I don't care which one, right? We'll send you to you know, Puerto Rico, 
Dominican is probably the worst one just because it's so competitive at this point. Right. But, you know, Puerto Rico, Colombia has got a, actually a decent little winter league. It's not talked about as much, but if the point is to just get a guy more reps, send him to one of those just so he can continue playing, continue to get at bats against even decent caliber pitching, continue to get game experience and continue to work on essentially strength and conditioning, right? So that you're better equipped to handle a full season in 2023. Cause I would look at Carol as somebody who should debut in 23, if he gets in a full season and performs the way I expect. So instead of looking at this as a six month challenge, April 1st to, or I guess maybe let's say mid-March to mid-September, if you count minor league spring training, look at it as a nine-month challenge from mid-March, whenever minor league games start through some kind of fall or winter league, so that you're uh, trying to get him basically the same quantity of at-bats or plate appearances, but spreading it over a longer period of time. That's just my Sure. Yeah, outside opinion. It's a, it's, it's forcing a different, you know, what the, what I, the takeaway from this is what I'm getting is that it's just forcing people to adapt to different timelines. Yeah. And, and I think about that from a broader perspective too, when you, with, with your uh, farm system rankings, your prospect rankings for me, I, uh, you know, it's all must read content. Don't get me wrong. But for me, the farm system rankings are always what I gravitate towards. Cause I like to think in the bigger picture. So the, you know, the concept behind the modern, you know, MLB roster, the sort of arc of rebuilding or tanking is, you know, you've got the MLB team declines, the farm system improves, and then eventually they converge. Being an Atlanta fan, I got to watch that sort of in real time. I went from yep. the Upton brothers to Ronald Acuna and Ozzy Albies. Yep. So, um, this year, I saw, I noticed a lot of big gains from a lot of teams following this pattern. Baltimore went from 18 to 10, Kansas City, 15 to 7, Pittsburgh, 16 to 6. Go read the article if you, you know, go read it to, to get the full picture. But like, all these teams saw big games, big gains in the farm system. Of all of those teams, though, Baltimore, to me, Baltimore seems to have the most factors against it to sort of meet that convergence. And to me, it has more to do with factors outside of their control because they're in the AL East more so than anything else to deliver on the precedents that like Atlanta and Houston set. So is there any other team, is there anything other than that with those teams or teams that you saw make big gains that are red flags to you that like maybe this may be the highest risk team to deliver on that convergence yeah baltimore's just an interesting case and you know a lot of orioles fans have sort of been vocal in saying oh, i ranked them too low which to me is always it's just really okay so you've studied the other 29 systems too. yes clearly you, you clearly you got this you, you hate you their team this, right you hate the orioles yeah. i mean it's just hey you know <laughs> the, the, i could talk about the cult of the amateur for for forever you know it's you can disagree but anyone can disagree with what i say right. but the question is can you have you looked at all systems deep with the depth and spoken to the number of people that I've spoken to? And then, Hey, look, Eric Longenhagen and Kylie McDaniel. And I mean, we're all doing the same thing. We're going to come to different conclusions because we have different processes, different philosophies. We talk to different people, right? But the people who come in, you know, you can't, you can't forum shop. Well, I'm a fan of the New York mammoths and Fangraph said the New York Mammoths have the second best farm system. And you said they have the fifth best farm system. So you're an idiot. Like, <laughs> Clearly. Okay. We're not having a conversation <laughs> right. here at that point, right? We've precluded any chance of a civil debate at that point. But to get back to the Orioles, you know, I think there are three, three big factors to keep in mind. The one you mentioned that 
they've just got a competitive disadvantage that basically no other team, I guess, other than Tampa Bay really faces. Mm-hmm. Um, but Tampa Bay has had, we're going to get to them. Head, <laughs> they have a huge head start on the Orioles, yeah. right? They've been doing this for, for almost for 15 years at this point, mm-hmm. the Orioles have really been doing this. How long's Michael Eisen and them? How long have they been? Oh, the four years now? Yeah. Yeah. So about four years, one of which was a pandemic year. So they have not had a lot of opportunities that Tampa Bay has had to get processes and people, et cetera, in place. And especially when it comes to factor number two working against the Orioles is that the previous regime was not involved in international free agency, pretty much at all. Mm-hmm. Um, they might send one guy a year and it would always be just one sort of real outlier, but they did not, they just weren't boots on the ground very much in terms of um, just being present in these markets to be able to cultivate the relationships and find, unfortunately you have to start evaluating players and they're as young as 10 years old in these uh, mm-hmm. in international markets, but countries that are not subject to the major league draft. Correct. And so there's a real, it, there's a huge lag, you know, Elias and company are now getting involved and are now signing players there. They just signed, I think their second significant class of prospects in international free agency. So their first class will be 18 years old this year. They are just starting to impact the system. Maybe next year for the first time, we will see teenagers that the Elias front office signed uh, as international free agents who then get far enough in their development to make the Orioles top 20. That has not happened in a really long time. And that is not a criticism of the current regime. If anything, it's a criticism of the previous regime and of ownership's decision not to be involved in that. But you can't look at that and say, no, the farm system's fine, even though the way that major league teams get something like 30 to 40% of their talent, the Orioles just eschewed that entirely. That's not really very realistic to say, no, 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 we're fine, even though we completely ignored 30, let's say it's 30% to be, um, which I think is probably not accurate, but to be more conservative. The Orioles just ditched 30% of talent acquisition, but they still have a you know top five system in the game. I know other experts believe they do, and I'm not disputing them, but I have a very hard time getting over that, right. um, that lack. And the other thing that's hurting the system, I did a Q&A with Dan Connolly, which subscribers to The Athletic can read, where we talked a little bit more about this. They don't draft pitching. And the system is pretty light on pitching right now. You have Grayson Rodriguez, who looks like a number two or or potentially number one starter. And D.L. Hall could be that, but he missed most of last season with an elbow injury. Who's the next starting pitching prospect there? Right. Clear starting pitching prospect. There's a drop. Their Their whole group of arms behind those two guys, they're guys who are much more likely to end up relievers or maybe just fifth starters. And it's fine. You want to have fifth starters. You want your system to be churning out fifth starters. But if you're trying to, and hopefully now I'm finally, what, 20 minutes later, getting to your question too, <laughs> what does the Orioles' next playoff team look like? Right? right. You can build a playoff caliber lineup out of what's in the system right now. I feel very confident they could, just from homegrown talent, create a championship caliber lineup. What's the rotation look like? Even if I give you Hall, let's say that D.L. Hall gets healthy enough. I'm a big fan. He's athletic. I actually think he's got better off-speed stuff right now than Rodriguez does, but Rodriguez has been healthy and Hall hasn't, and that's a pretty big separator. Mm -hmm. But let's just give him, put them both in. Grayson's your one, D.L. Hall's your two. Best case scenario. Um, I would love to see that. Okay. What now? (laughs) Right. And they're going to have to show that either they're willing to trade to go to get those guys or spend real money in free agency to go get those guys. And as of right now, we haven't seen that. 
That is not to say they won't do that, but I'm saying there's a pretty big challenge ahead of these guys. And I do think that is holding the system back a little bit as well. And I think it's a philosophy. And the Orioles pick first again, assuming that the system doesn't change for this year's draft. They're going to pick first again. A, they're not taking a pitcher first overall. Mm-hmm. B, there isn't a co- we may not have a college pitcher go in the top 10 this year. So even if the Orioles were willing to take a pitcher at first overall, this ain't the year, folks. Right. This team, this front office is never, Michael Elias took the last high school pitcher to go first overall, and the guy flunked his physical. I'm pretty sure Mike's not doing that again. I, I think he's out. Yeah, <laughs> that's a pretty safe bet. Right. And this, there's only, really, for me, there's only one high school pitcher you could even have in that discussion if you were willing to do it. They're not going to do it. So right. a hitter is going first overall mm-hmm. again. And unfortunately, you know, they're, uh, maybe I shouldn't say unfortunately. These are smart people running yeah. the Orioles. They're going to have to get very creative, but at some point they're also going to have to say, okay, we're, we're willing to open things up and try to get some pitchers here. Take that position player first, get a good deal. You would with the savings on the boat in their bonus pool there allocated to go get some pitching with subsequent picks. They really, they at some point are going to have to open up the philosophy a little bit to not be so hitter heavy. And I say that even as someone who actually liked a good bit of what they did in last year's draft too. Yeah, it's it, well clearly Keith. What they need to do is just uh, start up the the Jake Arrieta reunion tour and just make sure that that uh, you know make sure we do yeah. this a third time. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think so. I don't. I don't think he's ready for that. <laughs> <laughs> I think really, uh, you know, what what this whole thing has kind of now that we're a few years into this sort of you know tanking experiment and how teams have constructed rosters and how they've done what they've done I, typically to me the next step is the prototype of the prototype is now you start using some prospect capital to get the major league teams now you this is where not this but like the next step would be like you spend on the free agents you construct mm-hmm. the playoff team my you know where i would leave it with baltimore more so than like Kansas City. If you took Baltimore and put them in the AL Central, I, I feel, or you put them in even in the AL West, like mm-hmm. maybe this timeline changes. I see the external factors being just as prevalent as a, as an inhibitor for for their process as a, as opposed to like say when the Braves did it or the Astros did it. There were good teams, but you know the Braves also had the Phillies in their division and yeah, you, you know, that's in the Mets. And so, you know, that's all you need to say about that. Right. And I, to, to be clear, and not, I know you know this, but for listeners, just, I am not ranking the teams based on when I do the farm system rankings, yeah. it's based solely on what talent is currently in the system. Yes. That's all that I'm considering. And I don't consider players who graduated. I don't consider the competition in the division. I'm not considering it. Some people said, yeah, but the Orioles or the Mets, Mets have two first round picks this year. What about that talent? Great. When that when they make those picks and sign those players and they're in the system, I will the rankings will change accordingly. Right. Imagine if you are, ranked the Philly system with Mark Apple. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh yeah, right, right. I mean that's the you know that there are lots of um, there are lots of what ifs. Mm-hmm. And you're, the point you're raising is is a good one. Baltimore's not only would Baltimore's outlook be a little bit different if they were in a different division. Maybe their philosophy would be a little bit different. Right. If you're again, these are really smart people running the Orioles. I do have a lot of faith in their d- ability to make good decisions. Um, I have a lot of faith in their processes as well as their intellect. They know what they're up against, and I'm pretty sure this is not a front office that's saying we're going to build an 88 win team and figure that's good enough. I'm sure they're looking and say, how do we build a 95 win team? And then you have the variance that some years a 95 win team wins 101 and you win the division. That's the only path to success in the American League East. So they're fully aware of this. Mm-hmm. 
maybe the rebuild takes longer. Maybe we're all sort of sitting back and saying, wow, this is kind of going slower than we thought because they're not trying to build to here. They're trying to build to here. People can't see my hand, but I'm yeah. sort of saying they're not trying to build to that 88 win plateau. They're trying to build to 95 because, again, that's the only way you're going to um, you're going to have sufficient odds of success in the American League. So obviously teams can fluke into Seattle last year, winning right. as many games as they did was a bit fluky. The Orioles can't, you're not banking on that. That's not your right. philosophy. You can't take the Atlanta path to the world series in the AL East. No. Hey, it's great, right? Good for Atlanta. It's awesome. But you know, that's, I doubt that was the plan. No, <laughs> God, you, you look at what Alex Anthopoulos did at the deadline too. He was patching a lot. He yep. decided where well, I'm not going to go all in because I think he probably recognized their odds weren't great. And pretty much every move he made worked out beautifully. Uh, so, you know, a ton of credit to him and to his front office, but at the same time, recognize that that's not what you build for. Your that's not a template. Should not be there. Right. Not yeah. should not be for that goal. Right. And and that was, you know, uh, yeah, that was something that I was, you know, curious about if other teams were going to emulate that or use it as a template, but I just think it's impossible. You hope not, right? You want right. teams to aim higher. I mean, this is one of my big issues with the, you know, this idea, well, revenue sharing will, you know, encourage more teams or a salary floor will encourage more teams to spend. I mean, they'll spend, but does it just have them spend just to hit the floor? Yeah. Or teams just then aiming for mediocrity because they don't see sufficient reward in success. Right. Um, or do you know, well, so many teams are going to stay down towards that salary floor that we don't actually have to worry too much about spending up towards the cap. There are lots of ways that this could go wrong, not just for players in the industry, but for fans too. We want teams to be spending. We want teams to be trying to build those 95 win or better clubs. And whether you like the Dodgers or hate them, they're good to watch because they're incredibly talented because they have built a, an absolute machine in scouting and player development over there that keeps churning out good, you know, high quality major league players that makes them a better club. And yeah, it makes it really hard for the Padres to potentially catch them, but it does make for better baseball on the field. And that transitions me sort of beautifully to this not totally formed question that I had. Um, So I take them formed and unformed. (laughs) You're an equal opportunity question taker. Uh, So the the Rays, you know, talking about the Rays and churning out a competitive product on an annual basis. Mm -hmm. I've had this like thought bubbling around the old noodle here for a while. Mm -hmm. And it's got me thinking, like you look around the league and you look at the sort of infiltration of the Rays front office minds that are that are moving out into the rest of the league and you also like the CBA negotiations I think have sort of put this on display these are cap American capitalistic business owners that own these teams they are looking at Tampa and saying oh I could have a competitive product for less money now getting to the to the heart of the question here on one hand the Rays have set an incredible, had accomplished an incredible thing in the way that they quantify, the way they analyze. They've sort of made a, a step uh, forward. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Is it a Pandora's box, though? Are we going to be looking at teams 
that see this as owners, business owners, and they say, mm-hmm. well, they did it for less and got more. So I'm going to take one of their people and I'm going to emulate this. Could we, in 10 years from now, could we be looking around at half of the MLB teams operating and justifying operation like this? Yes. So like, it would, yes. I, guess, I guess, could you say like quietly, yeah. are the Rays becoming one of the most influential teams in baseball that way? Every, right. Every, everyone's aware of what the Rays are doing. Right. right. There's definitely, and I know of situations where obviously we've had people leave the Rays to go to other front offices. Um, and I think what, right. Matt Arnold in Milwaukee, James Click in Houston, Heim Bloom now running Boston. He should have been running the Mets, but they had to go hire the <laughs> agent guy instead. Okay. Dot, dot, How'd dot. that work out for you guys? <laughs> yep. Um, so clearly they're looking. Other owners are aware of what's happening. There are two things that would probably slow this. First of all, what the Rays are doing is more effective because not as many teams are following their template. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Rays people would tell you first and foremost, like the, we're only doing this because we have to. They would love to be able to spend some more money, retain some more of their players. Andrew Freeman um, got the opportunity to do it and did it. And won a World Series, right? Yep. Good for him. So there is that. Also, I think the thing that people tend to forget with the Rays, or, or maybe people just on the outside aren't as aware to, the Rays spend money on people. The Rays and the Dodgers, one thing that those two have in common, not a shock, they have an executive in common, is they have built processes around people. They are both highly integrated, very people-centric organizations where you talk to people who work in baseball operations for either of those clubs. They're not the only ones, but they do have something in common. So that's why I'm, I'm bringing them up. They have, um, they have a much stronger process that is built around their people and it takes a long time to build to to hire those people and get them integrated into your system and into your philosophy and it takes um it takes some money and you're probably going to hire some people who maybe don't quite work out or it's at least going to or you know they come in and it takes them a few years to get acclimated to it you don't build that overnight and somebody who tries to hire an executive from the raise to be, um, to say, we'll come create Tampa Bay North. It's not that quick. And it's probably not that easy either. Right. It's, it's, it's not just one person. It's a system. And I think like, that's what got me thinking about it. Like, okay, it's not just an executive. It's an entire mindset. It's a entire way of looking at building teams and running a business and I just, it, it just, it just came to me where I was just like, you know, what if in 10 years we're looking back at this and we say, you know, those little, those scrappy rays with their farm system and everything, all of a sudden now everyone, it, it, it's almost like the rays become a farm system for front offices. And, um, that was, that's kind of concerning in a way. Like, I know it, it, it makes me wonder sometimes, like if that's the way we're going to run teams, you can't mm-hmm. tell me an owner is not going to look at that and say, 
you know, down the road when these processes and when these people get put into place, they're not going to look and say, oh, wait a second, I can do this for less money. And that's going to have a negative effect on players going forward. Yes. I, I, what you've outlined is a concern I have with a system that has a salary cap and floor, which is that you'll actually have more of a drift down over time towards the floor. Yep. Um, because... Um, and because revenue sharing, which already makes it very profitable to not run a good team, um, you, you know, people forget that these are still, it's a profit motive industry, right? There's mo- owners are not in this to lose money. Some team, some owners are willing to do so, but the majority are not, especially now. And so, yeah, I, I, I do worry about that. And I worry about that in the context of the new, um, you know, whatever comes into the new CBA mm-hmm. and we'll just have to see, um, what it, what is in the new CBA. Um, right. and hopefully it addresses some of those potential concerns. But yeah, I think that the, what we know economically about what happens when you have salary caps and floors is probably going to end up being a downward, pre- downward pressure on salaries. It's probably not going to address the bigger issue of players at the bottom just aren't making enough money right now. Mm-hmm. Um, not relative to what they're actually worth. And so, yeah, you could, I think these are valid concerns. You could actually absolutely see teams trying to do this. Now, what that could do is create some short-term incentives for the team that says, well, if everyone else is only going to spend $60 million on their payroll, if I spend 75, maybe I'll have the best team in the division. Like there is some of that back and forth as well. So I'm not trying to paint some uh, dystopian picture where everybody's spending the absolute least, but I do think that it is, um, worth considering that a system like that could create more Tampa Bay like teams, not in the sense that they're doing anything wrong because they're not, it's more that they're, you know, they're doing it out of necessity where you could have other teams doing it out of um, not desire ne- basically yeah. to just not spend money, not necessity. Right. So um, we, uh, I want to leave on a, on a positive note. Um, what do you think for when we do get major league baseball this season, Mm-hmm. What do you think is, uh, you know, fast forward to the end of the season and not a prediction, but what do you think is something that we're going to take away? Like you see the story developing and you could see this happening as your biggest takeaway from the end of this season, whether it be on the field, whether it be off the field, what are we going to be, what do you think we're going to be talking about in, you know, the off season next year? Oh, that's a great question. Not, I haven't given that any thought at all. Everything is so, <laughs> so wrapped right? up. So focused on necessity, right? The necessities of now, right? The, the, I just finished the prospect rankings. Now the draft has started. Oh, we don't have a CBA. Are we going to get anywhere? Mm-hmm. Um, are we going to get, well, yeah, what kind of season are we going to get? I'd rather be an optimist mm-hmm. that we're going to, um, that we're going to get a full Ish. enough season <laughs> and a, and a, and a world series and a good outcome, you know, I fear that we're going to have expanded playoffs and that's going to end up being dominating a lot of the concerns. Yeah. Um, my real hope is that we're, what we get to in the, by next off season is that the conversation has largely turned back to the tremendous amount of young talent there is in baseball. And hopefully that young talent gets more fairly paid in the next CBA, but the, the young players in the major leagues are, are just so good. They're cut. They're better than ever. They're constantly uh, improving. And I think that's only going to continue to be. So we're going to see a lot of these guys at the top of my prospect list hit the majors this year. 
Shame on the Orioles if Adley Rutschman doesn't get 400 at-bats in the major leagues this year, barring injury, obviously. He's going to be there. Julio Rodriguez is going to hit the majors this year. He's a top 10 prospect in baseball. Grayson Rodriguez probably takes, um, you know, makes 15 starts, maybe more in the majors this year. And I want to see those guys. I want to see Spencer Torkelson make 140 starts in the major leagues this year. Like that, there's guys coming very quickly. And I hope that health and a full schedule and maybe some changes to the, um, to the service time rules. I hope that that allows us to see more of these players sooner that we see less service time manipulation going forward. So I, I, I want to end with hope, despite the fact that I'm pretty cynical about owners motives. Um, I would really like to see, um, uh, I would really like to see more of um, more of the conversation around the tremendous talent that there is in baseball. Awesome. Well, that's, I I feel like that's about as positive as we can get here and aspirational. So I'm going to leave it there. Keith, Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, you know, anyone who uh, is an athletic subscriber, you should absolutely read all the all of the rankings and the articles that that Keith writes. Also, his latest book, uh, The Inside Game. Uh, it's a it's not a sit down and read it uh, in one day read, but it is a it is an extremely insightful read. So, Keith, thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me.